The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So, Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about resolving public disputes. And to be able to do that, you really need to have a seasoned and expert mediator and we have one on the on the phone today with us coming from the east coast and her name is susan Padziba. and let me tell you the name of this book and a little bit about susan the name of this book is called civic fusion mediating polarized public disputes susan has been a public policy mediator for 25 years her clients have included the u.s department of commerce Defense, Education, Energy, Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, Interior, Labor and Transportation, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and the U.S. Institute of Peace. She's listed on the United Nations Mediation Roster and has provided mediation training for the U.N. Department of Political Affairs. She served as a Fulbright Senior Specialist in Peace and Conflict Resolution at the Amsterdam Amsterdam Center for Conflict Studies at the University of Amsterdam, Netherlands, and she has taught graduate seminars at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School, and I went to that program. She currently lectures and she consults internationally, and you can learn a lot more about her not only at our website at conflicthealing.com, but also at Podziba, that's P-O-D-Z-I-B-A dot com. So thank you, Susan, for joining us all the way from Boston. Thank you so much for inviting me, Mari. Well, as a, as a fellow uh, soulmate in mediation, I found your book absolutely fantastic. And some of the very difficult public policies disputes have been rough, you know. Um, and, and I went to the program and studied with Bill Urey, who I know you know, Yes. And uh, he also is one that, that gets involved in polarized public disputes. So this is um, really a tough area to, to mediate, but I think you offer some wonderful, wonderful explanations of what to do and all the challenges and the stories. So let's talk about why you wrote this book, first of all. Sure. Um, many years ago, I was facilitating a secret dialogue among leaders of the pro-life and pro-choice movements in Massachusetts after we had fatal shootings at two women's health clinics in my town. And one of the things that happened during those conversations was that 
although the gap between the two sides was never going to be bridged, they still were able to connect at a very deep level. And I was very puzzled by what seemed to me to be this paradoxical unity. How could, how could people who had such a strong difference in values still connect at such a deep human level? And so really I spent years trying to understand what that, what that energy was. And in fact, that was the driver for the book. Once I finally clarified that what that was was civic fusion, it was a, a force that when you bring people close enough together, they can bond even while they maintain deep differences. Yes. And I, I read that in your introduction. I thought that was fascinating. You originally had... You called it something else originally. What was it that you called positive? It was some kind of positive magnetic charge that you were talking about. You had a different name for it um, prior. Right. I I saw it as a paradoxical unity. Right, right. I thought that was great when I read that. Oh, paradoxical unity. That makes sense. But it, but for me, that it wasn't concise enough. It was definitely a paradox, and it was definitely a unity. But I felt that there was there had to be some natural force that would help me better understand what that actually was. And so I was playing with different magnets because when you hold two positive bar magnets together, you feel the force between them that won't be bridged. Right. And that was, for me, the gap. And so I tried to understand what could actually hold that gap in place and, and create a bond. Yes. And so that was actually the energy of fusion. That's what happens in nuclear fusion is where you bring together um, the protons of atoms and they bond because they're close enough together even while they sustain that magnetic force that should keep them apart. Right, right. And that, that, that bonding was none of them felt that this that the killing was, I mean, that was the thing that they all could relate to, right, that, that that this was a useless killing, even though they had very different ideas about whether those abortion clinics should be open or not, right? That's, it, that's exactly right. They were, they were horrified, all of them were horrified by the violence, by yes. the violence to born people. And they also, I think, understood that the rhetoric that was being used at the time, terms like justifiable homicide, were contributing to a... Um, an environment where people might actually use violence. And so the common goal that they had was to lower the heat of the rhetoric that was being used and to take action to reduce the possibilities of violence. Yeah. So that was the bond, that was the common goal that they had. And the bond was really a result of them coming close enough together and seeing each other as human beings and understanding eventually that everyone was coming to the issue with their own moral system. Um, They may not have agreed with each other's moral system, but in some ways you could say the, the devil disappeared. There was no one there who was acting from a place of evil. Rather, they were acting from a, a central place of goodness and morality, even though there was a clash in their understanding of what their moral systems were. 
Right. And so often when you have uh, public disputes like this, people look at the other side as being dehumanized, right? That's how they can keep up the the anger and the and the and the hate and the violence is when they don't look at them as human beings. That's right. And they I mean I think what happens is we selectively take in information that affirms the belief that we have. And that that feels good. That's satisfying. Right. Um, and it really takes a certain amount of focus and energy to go beyond what our usual positions are in order to learn. And one of the things that was fascinating about the abortion talks was that all of the women who participated felt that they ha- that it was better to be with people with whom you disagree sometimes because it caused them to stretch more, caused them to be intellectually stretched, and in fact to even better understand their own positions on the issue. Right, right. And I, I remember reading in your book that it was easier for the people who were pro-life than it was for the people who were pro-choice, because the people who were pro-life were very clear about their their philosophy as opposed to the people who were pro-choice. had a, a whole, They had to really come together in a different way. Am I right? Right. They they all had different. The pro life side was more unified in its worldview. Right. The pro choice women had different perspectives, and what happened during the discussion was it became we at at some point one of the pro choice women said, "Well, if you really believe abortion is a mortal sin, you must be really supportive of contraception." Right, and they were. And, and they said, no, we're not. And that's when the pro-choice person said, I really don't understand. Right. And as a facilitator, at that moment, I understood that we had to go deeper into the worldviews, into the assumptions that were really underlying what people's stances were in order to increase the understanding that they could have. So we asked each side to put together a few paragraphs describing their worldview. And yes, for the pro-life side, it was much easier. Um, the pro-choice side needed a, a little extra time to get theirs down. Yeah. So why don't you explain to my audience, really, what does public poli- how does public policy mediation really work? Okay, so typically a public policy mediator gets called by a government agency when there have been efforts to solve a problem or develop a policy or regulation that have failed, or because they know from, from the get-go that it's going to be very difficult to um, satisfy all of the affected parties. So the first thing is an assessment, uh, which for mediators, you, it, it looks a lot like um, the, the private meetings that one would have, before bringing people together. So as a mediator, I would um, have a conversation with members of the affected parties. So I might talk to 20 or 30 or 40 um, individuals who are representative of the stakeholders and affected interests. And from that assessment, I can put together a process design, which has um, what, what kind of meetings will we need, what kind of 
Um, outreach and consultation will be necessary. What's the agenda of issues? Who are the negotiators? And what kinds of ground rules might be necessary? So there's a lot of upfront work that happens before you actually bring people together. Because once you bring people together into a room where they expect to be polarized or they are used to arguing, you want to have um, a good structure for productive communications. And so once you start, the first meeting might be a discussion of ground rules, might be a discussion of what kinds of information will be necessary um, for the parties during the discussions, and then you get to the agenda of issues. What what, um, we do is we workshop each issue, meaning we don't try to solve the issues in the first pass. We want to really open them up and give people a chance to say what are some of the sub-issues, what are their key concerns, and what are their fears, and what ideas do they have for solving the issues. It's kind of like peeling away the layers of the onion for each issue. And what we find at that point is that the actual conflict is much smaller than people assumed. Because once you start dividing an issue into its component parts, you see that a lot of the parts are fine. For example, one of the, um, one of the cases that I talk about in the book is um, a negotiated rulemaking for worker safety standards for construction cranes. And a very difficult issue when I did the assessment was operator certification. And operator certification is basically what kind of license should, should a crane operator be required to have a license to operate a crane. And there was a conflict about that, whether it should be or shouldn't be required. When we got into the details, what really was in conflict was not whether there should be a licensing, not what should be, what knowledge base and, and um, capacities the crane operator should have, but really details about who could give the test that uh-huh. would be required for the license. So it, it was actually amazing to see how much agreement there actually was. <laughs> and then once you could focus the actual dispute, a lot of creative ideas were able to emerge. And that, I think, is what is so magnificent about public policy mediation, is that when you bring together all of the parties, all of the different stakeholders, each of whom holds some perspective of the reality, and you create a forum where they can really have a productive conversation, you find that these innovative, creative ideas emerge that nobody could have come up with on their own. And so that's, that's how the disputes kind of fade away. The dispute is people holding to what they believed was the right answer, uh, which couldn't have been the right answer if you're trying to satisfy 25 different stakeholders. But these new ideas emerge. And that's, that's the beauty of it. And I think that's what we all love about mediation is that we create a space for people to learn to solve their own problems. Exactly. And I would think that when you first interview those 20 or so people who are the kind of leaders of the stakeholders, that that is a, a time for you to build a lot of trust. Since they don't trust the other side, they have to at least trust that the mediator has the um, you know their their best interests at heart, and 
the best interest of the other side at heart and that they have really, they're there only to do the best they can to help both parties. Right, and as you know, mediators earn their trust all the way through the process, right? right. right? And, right. and, you know, I'm not going to trust anyone right off the bat. Someone's going to have to earn my trust, yes. uh, particularly if I'm walking into a situation that matters a lot to me and that I've been in great conflict about. So, but the assessment is absolutely the first step towards building trust, building relationships, and what I would say is building confidence in the mediation process and the idea that they will be able to satisfy uh, their interests and their constituents through the process. Right. And then how, I, I think the hard part, at least when I've done multi-party mediation and I haven't done the kind of, you know, governmental stuff that you have, I've done facilitation, but I think the hard part is um, who are the stakeholders and are the important stakeholders there? And if you don't have all of the important stakeholders, then it's going to be a mess. You're going to have to start over, right? That's right. If you don't have all of the right parties um, participating, then a lot of hard work could be for naught. Yes. Um, because you've got to figure out who can block the agreement, who's going to help implement the agreement. Um, and so the assessment is, in fact, the opportunity to keep asking who else needs to participate, who else needs to be at the table. And then also what I like to be able to have is an additional check. So some means for publishing the negotiating team, whether it's in the Federal Register or in a newspaper, and inviting anyone else who sees themselves as an affected party to determine if anyone already nominated for the negotiating team represents them or if they don't to nominate additional people. So we can so we so we work really hard during the assessment to find all of the right parties, but then I want to have another check where we go out to the public and say, is anybody missing? So what do you do if, I mean, how many people are, uh, how many are the most amount of people that you've ever had to facilitate in a discussion? So, you know, I think around the table, probably about 25 or so, but sometimes you need for different reasons, to have more people involved. So what happens in that situation is you can create different process mechanisms where people have other kinds of opportunities to participate, and the, the input from those other mechanisms gets integrated into the negotiations. So, for example, another process that I describe in the book is the Chelsea Charter Process, which was a case where a city was essentially bankrupt. It was a failed city. Um, the state took it over uh, because of corruption and fiscal mismanagement. And they needed to develop a new form of government in order to come out of state receivership. So we identified through a very comprehensive process all of the people that needed to be at the table to, to negotiate the elements of the charter, but we also understood that hundreds, if not thousands, of people in the city needed to have an opportunity to participate and to talk about what good governance meant to them. So we created a mechanism where we trained local people from the city to go to social clubs and organizations 
and run an hour or two-hour community meeting and ask them questions, uh, which were then compiled, and the compilation was provided to the negotiators so that they could use that as input into their own negotiations. So, you know, I find 25 people or so um, is close to the maximum for being able to have what I think are the intimate conversations that enable the innovation and creative thought. Um, But when you need more, you can just architecturally design the process to accommodate however many people need to be present and participating. Right. And that way, the people in the community feel that they're being heard. That's right. And because they're going to live under the charter, they become also the protectors of the new governance structure. Yeah. So what contributes to polarization in the United States? It's a really good question, Mari. I think most people would say things here in the U.S. have gotten more polarized than most of us remember um, in our lifetimes. Though, of course, we've had worse situations. We have a civil war. We had violence around civil rights issues. But it does seem that governments are and particularly Congress, has not been able to um, do the people's business in the way that most Americans would hope. So what are some of the things that contribute to that? First off, I think that there is some segment of people who believe that no action uh, is a win. So, So preventing anything from happening is actually meeting a set of goals. Mm-hmm. that people have. So so for people like that, you know, they may throw misinformation out there in order to sustain the polarization because that's a helpful strategy for them. Um, in other cases, I think we just don't have the right conversation. We, you know, the issues get oversimplified into slogans, three or five word slogans that really don't allow for any deep understanding of the complexity of the issue. And we know that public policy questions are always very complex. They always have multiple sub-issues within them. There are always multiple perspectives that, that feel very strongly. We know that there are always limited resources, so difficult choices have to be made. And I think that we don't have the conversations that are dependent upon a set of assumptions that are driving the polarization. And again, I think with the abortion talks, we were able to have the discussions of the assumptions, which enabled people to learn and then have a different kind of conversation where the issues were explored as opposed to just deepening each person's position. Right. But they had you. Now, Congress they don't have facilitators making sure that the various factions in Congress are really trying to work together (laughs) and trying to collaborate. It just seems to me, I mean, the same thing when I think about the, um, those who are out there as um, diplomats, what kind of mediation training do they have? You know, not very much. So I think, you know, as we, as mediation grows as a career and profession, I remember, you know, when I started mediating 27, 28 years ago, 
people thought I was meditating, you know. (laughs) I remember I wrote an article about it for the uh, legal newspaper for the state of California. I started mediating, and I got really excited about it, and I was trained, and I was doing some for the State Department of Education and all this stuff, and um, people said, oh, are you meditating now? And I said, well, yes, I do meditate, but that's not what I'm doing for my career here. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, the, the, what... What I think is exciting, though, Susan, is that I have seen this profession grow tremendously, not just in the legal field, but I mean, I have I have really seen much more in terms of all these um, when I go to the ACR conference and all these universities are having a dispute res- conflict resolution programs where people are all getting degrees in this. And of course, Harvard was there a long time, but but there are a lot of them out there. So, I mean, it seems to me that wouldn't it be helpful to have facilitators who are nonpartisan or bipartisan who are working in Congress to help these issues to be depolarized? You know, Mari, that's a question that I am constantly asking myself. <laughs> because, really, because Congress is... Um, it's a uh, it's a very unique institution, and it's it there's a lot to do about power, and so I it's hard for me to imagine Congress inviting someone who called themselves a neutral um, facilitator in to help them because they're trading off on issues that are so beyond what the public is imagined are being traded off on. Yes, yes. Right? So, you know, is it the farm bill for some um, Superfund site being listed? You know, there's just a set of negotiations that, uh, personally, I'd love to be privy to because it would help me understand better what's going on. Um, I do think people are, um, are frustrated with Congress. Um, I think things have cooled down a bit since uh, in the last year or so, but it does still seem that the people's business is not being done. And so sometimes I wonder if what's really necessary is people power or people coming together. We've got so many new modes of communication. Um, You know, I look particularly about the gun control issue, right, after the horrific tragedy in Newtown. And that's an issue where... It seemed that according to polls, there were some strategies that a vast majority of Americans supported, and yet it, nothing happened um, in Congress. They, the, the, the big thing was that the issues got a vote. Um, but so I wonder to myself, how would it be possible to harness the people power on these issues to make Congress more willing to do what the people really want. Yes. Um, So I think about, you know, in the abortion talks, we really found an entree to address what was uh, another tragedy. Um, And I think a lot, I don't have the answer about how could you, at what level might there be discussions about gun control where we could really get to the respectful differences and the assumptions, right? So, for example, I live in a city. In the, in the urban core, there tends to be a lot of support for gun control. But 
in the cities, I know that if I dial 911, within 90 seconds, I'm going to have a police car right. um, responding. If I lived in a rural area where I, you know, it may be an hour, 30 minutes or an hour before someone might be able to help if I had an emergency, um, I may feel differently. I understand those differences. I also understand that hunting is a generational sport, that that is something that people do with their children and their grandchildren and it's not something to be judged negatively. So how do we have the conversation where people can really articulate what, what guns are and come together around a common goal against gun violence? Yes. I'm sure and, and that nobody, nobody wants um, gun violence. No, and they don't want to see kids killed. And so there are so many other issues besides the gun as the violence on TV. You know, there's just so many factors. But believe it or not, we are out of time. I mean, we could talk forever. This is so wonderful. So I want to just give your book again, Civic Fusion, Mediating Polarized Public Disputes by Susan Podziva. It's a great book and wonderful, great uh samples and examples of this so just give your web website susan and we'll have you back again sure um thanks mari it really has been a pleasure to talk to you the time just flew yeah. um, my website is uh, www.civicfusionbook.com okay and we will talk to you please keep in touch and thank you for all the wonderful work that you're doing out there Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye now. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. for Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. And visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. Expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.